0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
2: Good morning, David Gura with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance from Bloomberg Radio. It's Friday, finally Friday, Veterans Day, the 11th of November, the day after Mr. Trump went to Washington. A meeting between the president and the president elect, a meeting that was scheduled to last 10 minutes, went on for 90. And the Dow hit records as Donald Trump made his way down Pennsylvania Avenue up Capitol Hill where lunch was served. Donald Trump and the next vice president broke bread with Paul Ryan from the House Speaker's balcony. They surveyed the city and then. They hammered out plans with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And all the while, the president-elect's transition team worked to allay uncertainty. New reports of who's being considered for Treasury Secretary David Malpass reportedly heading up the search for the economic team. Tom Barrick reportedly handling plans for the next inauguration. And a post on greatagain.gov, the transition team's website, the closest closest thing to a policy pronouncement we've gotten since Election Day. The still-to-be-named Financial Services Policy Implementation Team, quote, We'll be working yeah. to dismantle the Dodd-Frank hey. Act and replace it with new policies to encourage growth and
1: job
3: I'm,
2: creation. I'm not set
1: up yet, David, but I'm glad you did that introduction. And it, well, may we do a Friday shout-out to our team? Please do. That we had both Mr. Malpass and Mr. Barrick in this week go. to give perspective.
2: Before they got that On this done, Friday, before they got that folks, title, we yeah. don't
1: do this. I mean, David does all the work. I just sort of show up and have a cup of coffee. But our team... <laughs> just killed it this week, David.
2: Absolutely. They just killed it. No, the, the, the guests uh, affiliated with both campaigns and, and uh, the, the outside perspective as well has just been tremendous uh, all through the week, Tom. It is 2016, the year of the improbable, according to our first guest, Daniel Ferguson, renowned award-winning historian, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, kind enough to join us today uh, from London. Good to have you with us. Donald Trump saying that this was going to be Brexit times 10, a couple days out now. Uh, give your reaction to what we've seen here and, and if the context uh, – uh, give us if, if that assessment was valid.
4: Well, unlike the vast majority of uh, of people who were writing and talking about this election, I took that seriously. And that, that was, I think, because I was suffering from post-Brexit traumatic stress disorder, having been on the wrong side of the Brexit campaign in the UK Uh, and having uh, woken up to the most uh, almighty shock, Mm. I recognised very familiar symptoms uh, in the United States in the run-up to the election. And I said in my column in the Boston Globe on Monday that I thought Trump was uh, likely to uh, prove the pundits wrong by winning. Uh, from very many of the same reasons that, that Brexit happened. It's, it's an interesting thing, populism, uh, because although it's quite nationalistic in its tone, it's kind of a global phenomenon that you see in multiple countries right now. And it's a backlash against globalization in some ways because obviously Trump was playing uh, the cards of protectionism, talking about tariffs, restricting immigration. Uh, he was beating up on the corrupt political establishment that he's clearly Uh, eager to distance himself from but I think the other interesting thing about populism is its cultural dimension Uh, it it is a backlash against political correctness uh, feminism uh, it's a backlash against uh, affirmative action uh, black lives matter it's a it's a backlash against a whole range of uh, cultural and social things which I, I think explains its its
2: potency it was a wonderful column in which you alluded to Thomas Wolfe talking about the uh, every four-year confluence of the election in the World Series. You called Donald Trump the maverick pitcher. How did he pitch a perfect game? Yeah, I loved that passage when I came across it. I'm a
4: Thomas Wolfe enthusiast, and I remembered this passage where he says there's something about the way Americans watch the World Series and watch the the, uh, presidential election that's similar. They kind of love getting into uh, the contest uh, uh, but at the end of it they kind of uh, peacefully leave as it were the stadium and I think On the whole, that is how Americans are reacting uh, to Trump's victory just as they reacted to the Chicago Cubs victory. It's only a tiny minority of people who are engaging in these ludicrous uh, uh, protests. So I I think the analogy is a good one because what Trump did, uh, apart from sticking at it—remember the stamina was the thing that gave the Cubs the World Series. They just hung on in there to the very last inning. They never gave up. And Trump never gave up. I I was impressed by his stamina. He always seemed relaxed on the stump. uh, he never really lost his uh, his self-confidence uh, in, uh, on the campaign trail. The only times I thought he really was losing it were in the three debates with Hillary Clinton, and I prematurely wrote him off after debate mm. three and then realized that actually to people in uh, in middle America these <coughs> debates had, had counted for almost nothing because they were much no. more interested in, you guessed it, the World Series. And Neil baseball. Ferguson
1: with us and Willem Bowder to uh, come on here in a moment. Professor Ferguson, I, I do want to move forward to the forming of a cabinet, we talked of this earlier, your wonderful one volume on Dr. Kissinger, where he was he was known and he was a celebrity, but it was unimaginable that a Rockefeller Republican, or advisor, I should say, would join the gentleman from Whittier, California. Help me here with cabinet formation for Mr. Trump and the lessons you learned in researching Henry Kissinger.
4: Well, I think one lesson, certainly from 1968, is that you don't get a job in the administration just because you were a faithful servant on the campaign trail. And many people are, I think, making the uh, erroneous assumption that Donald Trump is simply going to hand out the big jobs to the people who were with them through thick and thin. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. And indeed, I think it would be a mistake because he has the opportunity to do what Richard Nixon did in 68, which is to reach out to his opponents. Kissinger had repeatedly criticized uh, Nixon. He was a a Rockefeller loyalist. He'd been uh, on Rockefeller's side through three unsuccessful bids for the Republican nomination. Uh, and he was astonished when Nixon offered him the job of National Security Advisor. In fact, he was so surprised he didn't realize he'd been offered the job. He went to Rockefeller and said, "What should I do?" And Rockefeller said, "Are you crazy? It's the President of the United States uh, who's, or the President-elect of the United States, who's just offered you this job. You have to serve." And I think Trump should play that card in order to make sure that he has the strongest possible team on national security and on economic policy. Those are the things by which he is going to be judged. And I think if he relies only on Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, Newt Gingrich and so forth, then I don't think the team, with all due respect to those gentlemen, will be strong enough. Remember, it's a huge challenge if you're a political outsider who's antagonised large sections of Uh, the Republican Party to staff an administration. Uh, Trump's biggest challenge right now will be persuading people that he is going to be a respectable president, uh, somebody that they will be proud to have worked for. I think he's going to be able to do it, but he should take full opportunity uh, of this chance Mm. to reach out to people who criticized him. And I've seen him do that. I've actually been very struck by his magnanimous tone uh, the, the almost humble way in which he uh, interacted with President Obama. Uh, I, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic that the administration that emerges uh, in the coming days will be a lot more mainstream uh, than the critics uh, of the Trump campaign were predicting
2: there was this ne- never Trump letter there were letters from uh... missions and, and foreign policy experts indeed you signed it as well how how, how never is never here when you talk to, to folks who've signed that letter you talk about bringing opponents on on board here uh, one one-time opponents on board here are they willing to bend are they willing to to backtrack on that would they be willing to serve uh, in a donald trump administration
4: well i can't speak uh... for other signatories of of that letter um... i do recollect a, a recent conversation i had uh... with some eminent military men, and uh, they were men who had uh, distanced themselves, or at least declined to be involved in the Trump campaign. Uh, But their view was that uh, if called upon to serve by a President-elect Trump, that was a different thing, Uh, because when the President of the United States calls on you to serve, you don't really have a choice. It's your duty. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that there will be people, civilians, uh, uh, with experience right. of government who will take the well. same view. The Never Trump letter uh, back in March reflected, I think, grave concern on the part of a right. many foreign policy experts that things that Trump was saying were just uh, crazy, okay. dangerous and irresponsible. You know, let's
1: do this. Let's come back uh, and continue with Professor Ferguson. Professor Bowder will join us in a moment. Worldwide, this is Bloomberg. David Gurr and Tom Keane with us, Neil Ferguson, and uh, we we just can continue on here after a most historic week. But, Neil, I really think for our audience worldwide, we need to drive forward to the winter and the spring of Europe. We have seen Brexit. Uh, You have been remarkably open and naked about how you got it wrong. We have seen the history of this America, and now thinkers stagger to Italy. They stagger to France. I don't know where else they stagger. I can't keep up with it. The Netherlands, Netherlands, thank
4: you. Germany, don't forget Germany.
1: Help us here, Neil. Is is Fried Zakaria beautifully put in foreign affairs with a cultural revolution of our populism?
4: Well, I'm not sure cultural revolution's quite the right analogy. That was uh, Mao's attempt to turn China's society upside down by unleashing the youth uh, against. Uh, the establishment, uh, this is something different because, of course, young voters uh, were decisively defeated in both Brexit and the U.S. election. Uh, You know, the the trouble about most of the instant uh, after uh, game analysis is that it it misses key points. by emphasizing, for example, the role of uh, of race in the election, a lot of commentators are missing the importance of class. They're also missing the importance of age. The thing that didn't matter too much, by the way, was gender. It didn't really matter that Hillary Clinton was a woman because, in fact, she didn't win a majority of, of white female votes. But age mattered. In Europe, uh, you have similar phenomena where older voters... More uh, working class voters, uh, male voters are looking at the world of globalization and multiculturalism and saying, enough already. Uh, They have had enough of large-scale migration. They have had enough of free trade. They have had enough of very free capital flows. So on economics, they are ready for a backlash against globalization. At the same time, all over the northern hemisphere, uh, they have had enough with multiculturalism. They're actually rather sick of feminism. There's a backlash going on here that is also cultural, but it's not a cultural revolution of the sort we saw in China in the 1960s and 70s. This is actually a cultural revolution by older demographics against uh, the fashions uh, that appeal to the young. The lunacies that you see on American campuses these days, the trigger warnings and safe havens strike. uh, The people in, in Main Street in middle America and their equivalents in Europe are simply bonkers. And I think that's a very important part of what's going on in the populist wave we're seeing. It's a a populist tide and in each country you have a a, a different wave. Notice I said Northern Hemisphere, uh, didn't I? That's because populism is a spent force in the Southern Hemisphere, especially in Latin America where it's been tried and found not to work
2: few people uh, I can think of have wrestled with, reckoned with, globalization as much as you have. What does globalization look like after January the 20th, 2017? Is it is it notionally different uh, after what we've seen in, in the UK, what we've seen here in the US? Well, globalization has been in
4: measurable decline since the financial crisis. I mean, if you just look at volumes of trade, if you look at uh, capital flows, uh, it really is uh, It's past its, its peak. And uh, the question, I guess, we have to ask is just how much deglobalization is there going to be? In other words, are we going to see a return to protectionism? Is Trump uh, serious about tariffs on Chinese imports? Uh, How much is immigration going to be restricted? Uh, Those are the questions we need to ask. And I think it's helpful here to know some history. The world is full of people who only seem to know one period of history, and it's the 1930s. So whatever happens, it's the 1930s. They see a dictator, it's the 1930s. Uh, There's a stock market crash. It's the 1930s. And this is not the 1930s. In the 1930s, unemployment rates got up into the 20% to 30% range and stayed there for years. We have practically full employment uh, in the United States, which makes it kind of odd to talk about massive infrastructure investment. But, hey, Uh, European economies have recovered from the crisis much more slowly. But the only country that really had a Great Depression-type experience was Greece. Uh, Ain't no Great Depression going on in Germany, I can assure you. So let's stop drawing silly analogies with the 1930s. Let's stop comparing the populists to Hitler and Mussolini. Please, I beg you, don't do it, because it's the wrong analogy. The right analogy is with the last time globalization hit a speed bump, which was in the late 19th century, after the 1873 financial crisis, when all over the northern hemisphere, populist movements sprang up that were against free trade and were against free migration, and they achieved quite a lot. They raised tariffs in the United States. They restricted immigration pretty drastically. Think of the 1882 Exclusion Act, which ended Chinese immigration to the United States. And the populist wave lasted for somewhere in the region of 10 or 20 years. And then it gave way to a progressive wave. And I think that's a much more illuminating analogy. I've said this ad nauseum. I want to say it to your listeners. Donald Trump is not a fascist. He is a populist. Fascists invade countries. They do war. Mm. Populists do trade wars. They build walls. We, That's we are, what they do.
1: We are out of time. Neil Ferguson, thank you so much. Most generous of you this morning to be with us from our London studios. David Gur and Tom Keane. A Friday to regroup and get to the weekend into Monday morning. Stay with us worldwide. This is Bloomberg. Can we say, David, thank you to our guests, led by Professor Bowder, for repeated visits and lengthy visits? they have things to do during the morning.
5: Not really. And we are
1: honored, <laughs> we are honored that Willem Bauder... It's Bowder just the coffee's so good here. D- David, why don't you start with Willem Bauder this morning? Yeah, we, well, let me get your board.
2: reaction. First of all, we were talking a few days ago ahead of this election, and, and the, the scenarios that most were, were predicting here were different from the one that we, we saw come into play on, on Tuesday night. Your reaction here to, to what we've seen, maybe not from the, the political perspective, but... Uh, well, um,
5: in addition to... Uh, Trump as president the Republicans have control of both houses, yes. so they will be able they should be able to pass some kind of stimulus fiscal stimulus at some point uh, it will have demand effects Keynesian effects and hopefully if it's targeted well will help potential output a bit as well uh, this means higher uh, interest rates uh, an upward sloping uh, yield curve Effects on equity in principle ambiguous because the fiscal stimulus in the future, so rates go up, uh, but of course profits go up in the future as well. So the markets have decided that the stimulus outweighs the rate effect, so the stock market has gone uh, whoopsie. Uh, uh, also partly driven uh, uh, by um, expectation of deregulation in key industries like energy, uh, environmental angle here and the uh, financial sector and possibly some others. So uh, all that seems to be drowning out the uncertainty that we're still feeling at the moment about both uh, the the team and the politics, which is a, a negative for for demand, and, of course, the fear of uh, protectionism, trade wars and uh, aggressive anti-immigrant policies, which are all negatives. But there's uh, no doubt that, on balance, the future looks uh, higher interest... Uh, somewhat higher inflationary pressures and most likely also um, higher levels of uh, GDP growth in the short run because of the anticipated fiscal stimulus if and when it happens. You're navigating that ambiguity. Investors are navigating that. The Federal Reserve
2: navigating it as well, as as, as you said. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for, for the, the rate hike timetable here uh, as policymakers wait to see what in fact will come out of Capitol Hill?
5: I don't think it makes much difference. Um, uh, clearly, um, no, there is additional uncertainty, which is the only thing that we observe immediately, but um, there also is the expectation uh, that um, this is not enough to send the economy uh, into a downturn, and we can anticipate uh, the fiscal stimulus uh, coming online, uh, beginning with the tax cut sometime next year, followed by... Um, infrastructure spending. So I think the Fed will just go ahead and do what it was planning to do and raise in, in December and a couple more times next year, or more if uh, the fiscal stimulus should be earlier and larger than expected. Does, really size, does size matter? Does composition matter when it comes to that infrastructure package? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, no, size, of course, matters, yeah. because that's aggregate demand effect immediately. Uh, timing also matters. I mean, there, I mean don't know how many shop-ready projects there are, and the composition well, it's possible to select infrastructure projects, especially in a country that has been starved of infrastructure investment for the last 40 years and has the worst infrastructure in the advanced economy. Uh, the returns can be enormous, and they could pay for themselves. Unfortunately, in practice, a lot of infrastructure is wasted because it has to go through political filters. It's often done at the state and local level with federal funds. Well, this is not a good news.
1: I got a memo from John Tucker uh, about 2 a.m. this morning mm-hmm. He said, thrilled that Willem Bowder's on time. Can you be sure to expand further your Hicksian (laughs) ISLM discussion of last week?
2: Yeah, because I didn't think enough people were listening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the high points last week with Professor Bowder was to look at the geometry that professionals like Mr. Bowder look at to try to describe the linkage of policy with his economics. Professor Bowder, to translate... President-elect Trump is going to, in effect, a stimulus, some would let, say much like what President-elect Clinton would have done, and shift the IS curve to the right in a desperate move for greater economic growth and greater output. When that occurs, the IS curve moves, and the other curve, the money curve, the LM curve move, and things happen. And as you know, there's a massive uncertainty and ambiguity to what will happen down the road. What does he need to do to do stimulus and get us to a better outcome two, three, and
5: four years down the road? John Tucker nodding. Oh. Well,
2: <laughs> Nodding off. <laughs> um,
5: from a capacitization, uh perspective, only a modest stimulus at best is needed in the U.S., unlike other parts of the world. The U.S. is very near... Uh, full employment, and uh, for capacity utilization. Uh, there's still some room, so, but a, a modest and intelligently designed fiscal stimulus with presumably tax cuts targeted on those who are likely to spend it. That means low-income groups, which is also distributionally, I think, more attractive. And then infrastructure spending in one of the many areas where uh, the U.S. needs its capacity uh, to become stronger. But, of course, Potential output growth, you know, and labor force growth, productivity growth, uh, that uh, is very unlikely to be affected in a material way mm-hmm. unless, uh, in addition to a much larger increase in infrastructure spending, which could even be uh, uh, tax financed because it's potential output we're looking at, um, there has to be an improvement in the quality of yeah, labor. But- and in, uh, and in private okay. capital. Pref- Professor Krugman,
1: who has written numerous times on John Hicks in a model from 1939, mm-hmm. would suggest go back to basic models. You and others have said the world's changed. If the world has changed for President-elect Trump, how does he take Washington policy and make for a better America when, as you mentioned, productivity is
5: not there? Um Really, demand management is not the primary concern for the U.S. economy, right? Yes, we can do a bit of a fiscal stimulus. Monetary policy is basically out right, of Right, a bit. But um, uh, from a demand uh, perspective, from a supply perspective, we need a lot of infrastructure spending. We need intelligent tax restructuring. We need intelligent design deregulation. And we need an open immigration policy that brings uh, the um, uh, the talent that America cannot produce Uh, in time domestically available. And we need, of course, great emphasis on education, vocational training. These are all supply-side measures. They take time, and they don't come out of, uh, uh, you know, across-the-board tax cuts. The price of this,
1: and folks, there's been a lot of great research on this recently, and Ambrose Evans-Pritchard, as usual, summed it up beautifully yesterday in The Telegraph. The outcome of this has to be strong dollar, right? When yes. you talk to Steve Englander, I'm sorry, it's dollar up. Is a dollar up big, which diminishes the advantages the Republicans could give
5: us? Inevitably, when you have a fiscal stimulus, which uh, no. puts upward pressure on capitalization and on inflation, if you also allow them for the likely response of the Fed to this, the higher rates, you're going to get you – know, stronger dollar out of that. And that is one of the ways in which uh, actual demand is reconciled with limited potential output, right? Because it will discourage uh, external demand uh, through the the strength of the dollar, which will offset a part of the fiscal stimulus. That's the way economies equilibrate. Um, If there was massive unemployment in the US, a very low-capacitization, then you could have a serious stimulus uh, without... Um, uh, necessarily any any crowding out because the Fed would not respond and uh, an effect on long-term rates would also be more modest on the exchange rate. But we're not there. The U.S. is not an economy that suffers from a big Keynesian problem at the moment. It suffers from a lousy supply side. When you think about and forecast
2: what effect a a stimulus package like this might have, how do you weigh what Donald Trump has said about trade, what he might do with regard to trade? Uh, The the risk here of... uh, Trade wars with Mexico and, and and China, how that might affect the, the economy overall. In other words, that could certainly dampen the effects of the, the stimulus.
5: Well, the, if the actual statements that he has made during the campaign—forty-five percent punitive tariffs on China, twenty-five on Mexico, other um, no, attempts to aggressively bring uh, um, no, jobs back to the uh, to the U.S. that would be a huge US negative where to materialise in terms of activity because there would be foreign retaliation and it, um, ha- could have a rewind of the 30s. I don't think this is going to happen. I think this was uh, no, a part of the uh, electoral rhetoric which bears very little relation to what actually will happen, but also both the Canadians and the Mexicans have already said, yes, we're happy to talk, and this is just the opening of uh, what will be long-term trade and foreign direct investment, you know, NAFTA-type negotiations, uh, that will uh, no, could last years, uh, but that, and that will result in some more protectionism, but very modest. Same for China. I don't think that either China or the US are really interested in having a major uh, trade ding-dong. They are the two largest nations in the world. Uh, the, the, the two largest trading nations in the world. So they have a lot to lose. For a long time, many months now, we've had
2: conversations about the role of, of central banks. Now you have a Republican Congress, Republican House, Republican Senate that has not been shy about saying they intend to rein in the powers of the, the Federal Reserve, tie inflation to, uh, sorry, tie interest rate hikes to, to the Taylor Rule, and et cetera. When you look at the the role of the, Fre- the Fed here under a, a Trump presidency, uh, how constricted do you think it'll be by Congress?
5: Well, it really depends on whether con- Congress legislates yeah. uh, now the kind of uh, uh, insanities that they were proposing, like um, the constrain the Fed to follow a numerical Taylor rule of some kind or whatever other rule. Now, um, now I think operational independence for monetary policy, narrowly defined, interest rates, uh, balance sheet expansion, um, uh, now that uh, has to remain there. If that goes, right. then we'd be really in trouble. And uh, I think it would be hugely market negative.
1: And now we digress. Mm -mm. Chair Yellen, I would guess, Professor Bowder, will serve a term. And, of course, the parlor game of who would be another Fed chairman has come up. And, of course, a name of public service esteemed is John B. Taylor of Stanford. (laughs) He would bring in a regime of a more rules and stringent-based approach Give us an update on rules versus discretion right now. Chairman Greenspan the other day made it clear he still stands with discretion. Can President-elect Trump shift us towards a rules-based New Zealand-like Federal Reserve?
5: The New Zealand Federal Reserve is not rules-based in any mechanical sense. Uh, rules and discretion are not alternatives, you cannot have a complete rule that allows for all contingencies and tells you how you should respond with your instruments, interest rates, QE, QQE, to all possible circumstances. So there always has to be discretion in the sense that things will occur that were not allowed for, unexpected events, and you still have to act. So uh, what you, all you can do is try to give the most guidance, information about your objectives, and those are clear, from um, uh, the Federal Reserve Act and from the the quantitative implementation of that, the 2% inflation target, and how you view uh, the transmission mechanism as a policymaker. And then the markets can sit back and figure out how you're likely to act. I
1: just asked that question because I wanted to get you fired up as you (laughs) go out into the cold of New York. (laughs) Willem Bowder, thank you so much, Uh, not only for today, Professor, but... Uh, for joining us uh, over the recent weeks. It's just extraordinary to have you in here. And of course, in this historical moment, I believe we got through that without talking about the Netherlands we did. or the United Kingdom. <laughs> that was rude of us.
5: Uh-huh. Willem Bowder is a chief
1: economist uh, with Citigroup.
0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.
1: Joining us now, Robert Sinch. We caught him in a backyard. He's out like on the back 40 acres raking. And what's important, David Gurrow, to understand is you'd expect a guy like, you know, Cinch to have the Gardenia combo system spring wire rake. You know, you'd think he'd be more like organic and quiet. He's out there manning it with a Husqvarna 125B E tech. Bright leaf orange. Blower yeah. this morning. How how are the leaves this year, Bob Sinch?
6: You know, Tom, you do some great thinking when you're doing manual labor like that. So, uh, some of my uh, some of my uh, better ideas over the years have come doing uh, doing mind somewhat somewhat mindless tasks.
1: Bob Sinch has a uh, on the kitchen wall, folks, the list of things he's been wrong on, and it, it's time for a victory lap. You got halfway to a 130 sterling, and I think like eight or nine or ten days, 126. 46 on sterling, Bob Sinch, is extraordinary. How does that destabilize the political economic dialogue for Prime Minister May?
6: Well, I'll point out one other thing, Tom, just in that that context, is that this is a stronger sterling against the dollar in the context of a much stronger dollar. So this really is a pretty significant rebound for sterling. Um, I guess I guess part of it is uh, you know the uh, the court process in the UK dragging on a little bit longer um uh, on the Brexit process than people had expected. Um I also think the markets have found a different whipping boy to uh, yeah. to, uh to pick on in terms of uh, the currency markets uh, obviously the the peso now is the one that's uh, right. the most favored trade but I do think uh Uh, What's happening to Sterling is a little bit instructive about the peso, right? When you get these discrete events that surprise the markets, um, there's a big reversal of positions. That's the nature of surprises in markets because positions were upset, and there's an overshoot. Okay. And uh, I think that's what happened in sterling. And at some point, yeah. that'll happen in the peso. Three
1: standard deviations on a oh, 12 month or so peso chart right now. Bob Sinch, if I look at weaker peso to a person, everyone's rationalizing the move. I don't buy it. Currency depreciation to a nation is just that a depreciation. What is the effect to the people of Mexico of a weaker peso?
6: You know, we've seen uh, Mexican inflation uh higher than the global average. Um, and now fortunately it's only been about three and a half percent or so. Interestingly, we've seen wages increasing about four and a half percent or so in Mexico. So actually real wages have been holding relatively steady. It's not clear that'll be the case going forward. It's not clear that wage rates can keep up with what's going to happen to uh higher prices, particularly for imported goods. But uh, you know, but in general, a currency depreciation um, is 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 pretty devastating for a population, particularly um, uh, in, in developing economies where the investment and banking sectors maybe aren't as mature. And people in general don't have uh, ways to protect themselves, and I think that's you know what we're going to see a little bit in uh, in Mexico going forward.
2: We were focused on the optics yesterday, Bob, of of the president elect meeting with the president, going to Capitol Hill, talking about a legislative agenda with the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader. What are we what are we watching? What are we listening for here uh, in the coming days? As as you as you think about how far the peso might fall?
6: Well, I think the first thing we're listening for is normalcy, um, and I think that that. Uh, you know, I think President Obama has 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 told us that very well. This is a, an orderly transition of power. These things happen. Not everybody's happy. Um, the peso, I think, in the short run has gotten caught in sort of a trifecta, right? The Fed now uh, extremely likely to hike rates uh, in December. Uh, so that's a negative for the peso, positive for the dollar. Uh, second, oil prices have begun to retreat. We just had a report from the IEA that non-OPEC production is going to be probably a bit bit stronger, like a half a million barrels a day stronger than uh, than this year, um, and that's put some downward pressure on oil prices. Uh, and third, all the uncertainties surrounding uh, what the trade relationship will be between Mexico and, uh, and the U.S. So in a sense, sort of the fundamental backdrop for Mexico is is even more serious than it is for... Than it was for the UK, and I think we would have seen downward pressure on the peso here because of oil prices and higher US rates. Um, even if uh, even if the election outcome had been different, probably not as serious, uh, not record lows, uh, but certainly uh, the, the fundamentals are not there to uh, for anyone to step in and say, "Hey, these are great levels for me to buy the peso."
1: Mm-hmm. Bob, thank you so much. We'll let you get back to uh, your work on the lower forty with the Husqvarna <laughs> 125B E-Tech 28. 28- CC's engine wow. John Tucker That's like It's pretty yeah. good you know? No that's not Going to do it <laughs> That's not going to do it I mean that's like For moving that's for, that's
2: for rookies
1: Rookie Stuff Of course folks I'm so adept When was the last time I picked up a garden tool John Tucker Nixon was president <laughs> We continue strong with our guests on Disney way out front with caution. The headline is a fourth quarter stumble. Rich Greenfield thinks it's more than a stumble. He is with BTIG. I get ESPN, but Disney is Disney, or is it not? Give us an update.
7: Look, ESPN is 43% of Disney's operating earnings or the cable network division is 43% of Disney's operating earnings of which ESPN is by far the biggest part. And and ESPN is really struggling to grow. I mean, that's the headline here is that ESPN is facing growth challenges. It's got, you know, growing costs and its revenue growth is slowing. Ratings are a disaster. I mean, no one's watching SportsCenter. NFL ratings are down sharply. Uh, they've got challenges, real challenges when they look ahead to their business, and I don't think consumers are coming back to multichannel, live, linear television. I think there's just a new world out there, and everything we see industry-wise points to more and more people choosing actively not to pay for television.
2: Rich, what are the comments that John Malone made yesterday uh, at the DealBook conference here in Manhattan saying he speculated that uh, Disney may want to divest itself of uh, ESPN?
7: You know, look, you know, we've thought a lot about, you know, how would you fix Disney's problems and you know, you could almost undo I remember when I went to Goldman Sachs the first month I was there in nineteen ninety five, Disney bought Cap City's ABC and they got this little hidden gem at the time called ESPN that ended up obviously being the juggernaut of that transaction. That was obviously twenty two years ago, and you, you look back and you go, you know, would it make sense to spin it off now and separate ESPN from Disney? It doesn't sound like the company has any desire to do that. You know, Disney last night basically said – or Bob Iger of Disney last night said he feels more confident in ESPN's future than investors. So that doesn't sound like someone who's about to spin it off. That being said, you know, a strategic change to Disney probably would make a lot of sense given the challenges they're facing.
2: Rich, I eavesdrop on the subway. heard a couple of guys talking about how saturated the football season has become, how many football games there are. How much of this has to do just with the fact that the NFL is giving us too much to watch?
7: you know i don't know it's it's one of these things where i can't really put my finger on why ratings are are as weak as they are people complain about the officiating people complain about the you know mm. amount of commercials you know Look, you look at EPL over in Europe, you know, Premier League, uh, which is one of Walt Pysik's favorite things in the whole world. Um, you know, Premier League ratings are down 20 percent in the UK and there's no commercial. So I don't know if it's a commercial issue. I don't know if it's purely an election issue. Cause you're,
1: the, you're dead on about TV. There's I see just something.
7: There's something going – you know, it's not a tune-in problem. Here, here's the issue. Tune-in to football is actually flat year over year. The problem is tune-out. As soon as something is boring – you have so many choices, right? Everyone that's listening to your show, they no. don't have to just watch a boring game. They can go do Netflix. They can go watch video games on Twitch. Like you have an infinite number of options, no. and I just think at some point there's a breaking or no. a tipping point. We got to do Twitch, Tom. That's
2: what. That's you what we got to do. Right.
7: Rich
1: Greenfield, thank you so much. We'll get you in for a much longer time here. Rich Greenfield of BT IG. One of the options is to watch Fox. Brett Bear scores special report with Brett Bear. Brett Dunwoody, Georgia. You can go out to the Kingswood United Methodist Church, the Kingsley Elementary School. You can go down Leanne Womack Road to the Dunwoody Library, and you can vote. My perception, Brett Baer, is lots of people nodded politely or even paid lip service to the zeitgeist, and they went in the voting booth, and they voted with a vengeance for Mr. Trump. What have you learned in the last two days?
3: Yeah, good morning. I, I think you're exactly right, Tom. I think— And not only that, but they came out and they didn't tell the exit pollers, um, you know, they didn't talk to them. And when they said, you know, who would you vote for, they they didn't say. Mm -hmm. And that skewed the results in a number of states. And we realized that midnight, you know, like during the night, uh, about 9 o'clock, the raw vote total was not – lining up with the exit poll numbers and that's when we realized that you could have a president Donald J. Trump.
1: And just a surveillance shout out to Mr. Bear's colleague Chris Wallace who actually allowed for a true debate to occur in the third uh, debate. You wonder as we look back at history folks how that changed the uh, the dialogue. Uh, you had on George Will last night. I think his essay in the Washington Post is the single best thing so far. He talks about demographics against the Republicans. In 2026, Brett Barry, your Georgia will be minority dominant. Mr. Will's writing about not the end of the Republican Party, but a Republican Party in ascendancy that has to wake up. How urgent is it?
3: It's urgent, but I, I'm hearing that there's going to be Uh, a President Trump that acknowledges that and deals with it. I'm hearing that in addition to passing a slew of economic uh, bills through an anxious and happy excited Paul Ryan um, that he may, President Trump, may travel to these inner cities uh, and and speak to the problems of uh, African American communities that have been left behind. And uh, if that happens, and if that um, message seeps in and stuff starts to change, uh, you could have the Republican Party fighting back.
2: To be a fly on the wall in the Oval Office yesterday when Donald Trump sat down with Barack Obama, the first time the two men uh, had met, a meeting scheduled Excuse to go me, for David, 10 minutes. Yes, David Tom. Fox
1: has the Oval Office wired. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you think of the history that these two men have, uh, again, a history that it was something that played out uh, uh, during, in speeches, during, during debates, they hadn't met before. What did you make of, of how they looked, what they said yesterday in that pool spray following the meeting yesterday at the White House?
3: Yeah, I mean, the words were, were good. I thought the image was interesting. I thought, uh, you know, Donald Trump, a humble Donald Trump, uh, as he, he kind of looked. Um, I, I think there's going to be a period here where, first of all, the job and the, the import of the job is going to sink in. And, um, and there's a lot to absorb. He has uh, his first presidential daily brief this morning, uh, Donald Trump does, and um, there's, it's, it's a huge job. And I think the enormity of it, I, th- I think you saw in his face. And, and for President Obama, I think it was magnanimous and, and gracious, and I think he's, he's being accurate when he says he wants the transition to be smooth.
2: I spoke with, uh, with former Congressman Eric Cantor the day after the election, and I said this must be great for, for the incoming president. He's got a Republican House, he's got a Republican Congress, and, and what uh, Congressman Cantor said to me is you've got a real tension uh, within the House especially. There's this Keynesian push here for, for stimulus, uh, a lot of Republicans going along with that, but then there are Republicans who are champions of fiscal responsibility, and, and he doesn't think that it's all said and done here. What's, what's your sense of how cohesive the Republican Party is going to be in the, in the House especially?
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, you've you've got the White House, you've got the House, you've got the Senate. You just don't have any excuses. Uh, There's no excuse to get what you want to get through. And uh, there is a break. I do think that they're going to be be able to herd the cats because there has been this cloud over Republicans where they feel like they are just spinning wheels for many years.
1: Then there's going to be a cup of coffee between the gentleman from the Navy in Arizona, Mr. McCain. In President-elect Trump or President Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about filibuster, Brett Baer. You're a lot more wired into filibuster dynamics than I am. Is Mr. McCain and others going to enjoy the art of filibuster?
3: I don't think so. I think they're going to try to get to the things that they can get through first. Agreed. And then they're going to kind of deal with the other stuff. Now, remember, you have five Democrats up for red seat re-election uh, in two years. They're going to be a lot more willing to work with Republicans than, than before.
2: News broke yesterday that the White House is going to push for an element of Dodd-Frank to, to go through here. These are bonuses on financial serv- uh, 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 caps on bonuses for financial services pr- professionals. What else do you expect we'll see here during this lame duck session? If there's not a whole lot of movement in Congress, what do you think the White House is going to try to get done before January?
3: Boy, I, I can't imagine anything of, of significance getting through um i i really don't even think that uh, there's going to be much at all you know obviously if it was a president clinton it was going to they were going to try to move merrick garland but uh none of that's moving
1: brett bear thank you so much special report with brett bear and of course we have our sunday shows we are thrilled to bring you the work of the morning uh bloomberg radio in the afternoon all the different Sunday shows. Fox News Sunday. Thanks Look for listening to, to the Bloomberg, Bloomberg Surveillance Radio Podcast. Sunday Subscribe afternoon. and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.